This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to start today with a passage of scripture that will be familiar to you, but try to listen to it as if you're hearing it for the first time. Here it is. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal them their land. That passage, of course, is from 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. But we need to hear it in a fresh way because of the situation we're all living through right now as American Christians. We're not only a nation that has suffered tremendously in the last year, we are also a nation that is now in peril. We are a nation that I believe is under God's judgment. And so the question becomes, why does God bring calamity like the calamity we see all around us right now? And what must we do about it. We're going to dive into all of that today with Reverend Al Baker. He is an evangelist with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship, the author of several great books and a wonderful blogger as well. He's been writing some terrific devotionals on this important subject over at his blog, Forget None of His Benefits. And Al, welcome back. It's so wonderful to have you here and Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Janet. Happy New Year to you as well. And of course, as you mentioned, this is a very, very difficult time for our nation, but it's a time, I believe, where God can get our attention, and I trust we'll seek Him and and, uh, see what God will do uh, as we seek Him earnestly. Amen. You are my go-to guy, Al, I have to say, when it comes to really looking at things biblically, when times are tough especially, and when times are good. But in this case, you're going to this very familiar passage, especially 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's the one that we hear oftentimes. You have said, though, in a series of devotionals that you've written on this subject, that you fear we're in the midst of losing our republic. How do you feel about that right now, and especially in light of what went on in Washington this week? Yeah, I was deeply grieved uh, yesterday, especially uh, deeply grieved. Um, I I spent about 20 years living in the state of Georgia and um, just seeing how the election went uh, Tuesday was very troubling to me. And it seems to me that... um, all of our systems are failing uh, on the, on the uh, federal, state, and local levels, generally speaking, uh, in the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the executive branch of government. They all seem to be failing. And when our forefathers uh, set up this great nation, they made it quite clear that the only way a republic can stand is if you've got, at the very least, moral people. They may not have to be all Christians, but they have to be moral And obviously that is not the case, and that's why things are unraveling as they are. Right. I agree with you there. Yeah, virtuous people. Isn't that the way the founders talked about us, that you can't really maintain a public without virtuous people? Somehow along the way we forgot about that, and and it doesn't even seem to come up very much in conversation. You don't hear a lot of public uh, discussions about this subject whatsoever. 
No, that's right. And, uh, you know, we have to go all the way back to our beginning in 1630 when uh, John Winthrop um, gave his famous City on a Hill speech. And he laid out the vision for the new for the new nation, and it was going to be a God-centered, Christ-exalting nation. And we, you know, we've had our times of uh, of uh, declension, but we had also had our times of revival. But I would say, since at least the 1860s, it's been a pretty gradual at times, but sometimes even more quick uh, declension away from what we ought to be as a nation. And so we've we've uh, left that God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-believing approach to life, and we've become more man-centered as time has gone on. Yeah. And uh, so now we we are really, I fear, losing our republic. And uh, it's a pretty frightening thing. On the one hand, on the other, of course, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We trust Him. But we, we are getting what we deserve. We, we are a wicked nation. And you can see, as we go back and look at First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, that God would judge his people when they turned away from him. He made it quite clear in Deuteronomy 28, as they were about to enter into the promised land, he says, if you obey me, then I'll bless you above all the nations of the world. If you do not obey me, then I'll bring curses upon you. And so that's what we're seeing here. Now, of course, we're not a theocracy. I understand that. But nonetheless, those, those are principles in the Bible. And those principles will apply on a family level, on a church level, on a national level. If you obey God, he will bless you. If you do not, he, it's not going to turn out well. It just won't. Right. And that's right. where we are. What do you think that says about the present judgment we're in? Is it really, in your mind, a judgment, first and foremost, against the church, an indictment against the church? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Peter says uh, judgment begins with the household of God. So I think we have to, we have to put the blame first primarily on the church, and even more specifically on the preachers. Mm. And I'm a preacher, so all preachers are, are called by God to preach the Word of God without equivocation. We're called to be a conscience to the nation, or to, or to warn our leaders that uh, living in false ways and having policies that are contrary to the Scriptures, they're going to stand before God and give an account. But we've not done that very well, and uh, so we have departed from our position, our, the necessity of preaching Christ crucified, calling people to repentance and faith, calling people to holy living. Yeah. A lot of that, I think, is because we've, what we've done is we've developed uh, over the last couple hundred years what I call an attraction model to church, and that could be any number of different churches and, and ways of doing ministry, but it's basically build it and they will come. In other words, if you've got, you know, it's all about getting people into the building. And so what happens is if you've got um, uh, a, a big mortgage and you've got to have a lot of money to pay that mortgage, well, you can't upset the, 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 the big movers and shakers of the church, you know. So the tendency is to go soft on the message. The tendency is to compromise. The tendency is to accommodate to the world. And it's it's uh, it's coming back at us, and I fear 
that that's uh, that's where we are right now as a nation yeah, and as right. a church. So so yeah, the judgment begins with the church. It's all it begins with us, but of course it affects the world around us as well. Oh, it does. So when you go back to this very famous passage of scripture that I've read that you write about Second Chronicles seven thirteen and fourteen, you say understanding the context is incredibly important because it is sometimes the case that we'll go back to Old Testament verses and yank them out of context. What is the proper context that we should understand that passage in, Al, as it applies to us, uh, maybe via a paradigm of sorts, and what we need to listen to from that passage? Right. Well, Solomon has just built the temple, and so uh, God is giving him a promise. Uh, uh, And this is for the covenant people of God, uh, Israel. And of course, uh, the new covenant would mean all believers, uh, whether if they're Jewish or not. But that was the context then. And basically, a lot of people just forget the verse 13, which you read earlier. They love to read, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and so forth. But You've got to understand verse 13, and he says, I, when I bring calamity, when these things happen, uh, he says, um, you know, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by name, my name will pray. So God is the one who brings calamity. Uh, Isaiah 45 makes that quite clear in the context of Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So God is sovereign. God's in control of the whole world, and he does as he pleases, Psalm 115. And part of that is that he will bring calamity as a wake-up call to gain our attention that we might seek him as we ought. Very good. We're going to pause for a very, very quick break. Reverend Al Baker with us answering the question, why does God bring calamity and what must we do about it? We'll return right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Isaiah 45.7 is such an important verse for us to understand. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's very, I think, tempting sometimes to look at everything that's been going on in the United States over the past year or so and say, oh, God didn't cause this. It's sinful man. Well, of course, sinful man causes what goes on in the world, but God is sovereign over it. And we are talking with the Reverend Al Baker about a wonderful series of devotionals he's been writing on this question. Why? Why does God bring calamity and what must we do about it? And you were mentioning this particular verse, Al, before we went to the break, Isaiah 45, 7. The fact that God creates calamity, though, you've pointed out, does not absolve man of his responsibility in sin. How are we to understand that tension? Yeah, it's uh, it's what some theologians call an antinomy, which is an apparent contradiction. Um, I, I like to talk about it as the complementarity of truth. There are things in the Bible that seem to be contrary, uh, and they don't fit into our minds, as it were. They're beyond our, our understanding. For example, Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% man. There is God's divine sovereignty over all the affairs of this world, and yet people are responsible for their actions. And so, you know, using 9-11 as an example, um, you know, people don't want to say this, but God created calamity. God brought that. But at the same time, those wicked men who got on those planes and ran them into the uh, Twin Towers, they are totally responsible for what they did. Right. Now, how, do we fig- how can we figure that out? Well, we really can't, any more than we can figure out the, God's uh, divine election and man's human responsibility to believe the gospel. So there, there is that tension that we just simply have to accept. And you even see it in Romans 9, where... Paul's break taking up the issue. Not all of Israel who are of Israel are not all Israel are of Israel. He takes up this whole idea of election, but then at the very end he says, uh, basically says, okay, that's as far as we can go. Hmm. We can't go any further. We just accept it. So I think that's where we are. So bottom line, what we're saying is, is that God, God causes COVID nineteen. God causes the. Uh, election issues that we've got right now, but at the same time, people are responsible for what they do. Right. They they don't have they don't get a pass. Well, you know, that's just happened. There's nothing I can do about it. No, we're responsible, and so we're responsible right now for where we are as a nation. And the beautiful thing is, is that God has given us an out. He's mm-hmm. given us a remedy. 
And that remedy is in that passage in Second Chronicles 7, which you read earlier, which we've been talking about. Yes, that's right. Well, and you give some really good reasons why God sends calamity, one of which is he sends affliction in particular because he loves his people. Now, some, you know, snarky Christian might say, well, love me less, Lord. I don't want affliction. But that that's part and parcel of the Christian life. I mean, we have the fellowship of his sufferings and we enter into the kingdom of God through many trials and tribulations. Uh, We don't like that so much as Americans because we've had it pretty good up until now. But can you speak to that issue of why God sends affliction and it's actually a sign of his love? Well, you know, uh, Revelation uh, 2 speaks of that, uh, Revelation 3, I should say, and then also Hebrews 12, those whom he loves, he reproves and disciplines. Right. And uh, this is sort of an anecdote. I remember reading a book on the, 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 the great Indiana basketball coach, Bobby Knight, who was quite a controversial character. But he used to, his players used to say, if he screamed and yelled at you, that knew, you knew that he still loved you and believed that you could help the team. If he didn't talk to anybore, then you knew, you, you knew it was over for you. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of given up on you. Yeah. And the fact is, is that God, um, God chastises his people those whom he loves, because he wants us to move toward him. He knows that our natural tendency in our flesh is to move away from him. And uh, so he will, he will allow, he will bring these things into our lives in order to bring us closer to him, that we will draw near to him. And so I always tell people, when you've got affliction or difficulty going on, the first thing you should do is say, God are you contending with me? And if so, why? Mm, yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that every time something uh, difficult happens that it's a chastisement or discipline. There could be other reasons for it. <clears throat> but nonetheless, that's the first thing we should do is ask ourselves if, if that's happening, if, if, you know, if, we're, if he's contending with us in some way. And if so, then the beauty of the gospel is we repent. Right. Lord, thank you for showing me that. I want to confess my sin. I want to, I want to move toward you. And he promises that his grace is greater than our sin. So mm-hmm. it's important that we acknowledge and understand that his all his blows, as the Puritans used to say, all his blows are love mm-hmm. for his people. That's wonderful. You know, and, and some of the other reasons that you've listed are very convicting when you say God sometimes sends affliction to his people because he does not want his name blasphemed among unbelievers who witness the disobedience of professing Christians. And you reference First Timothy 6, verse 2. What are you saying there exactly? I, I, how are we to understand that truth that affliction can be tied to God's disfavor with us for blaspheming his name among unbelievers well just you just look and you see uh some of the prominent christians uh you know maybe on the national stage or maybe even more local for for your for your listeners and uh and you realize that when these things happen the unbeliever says see see you people all are phonies you're all hypocrites Mm, yeah Uh, this jesus stuff doesn't work it's not real it doesn't it doesn't help anybody it's just a crutch or whatever they say and, of course, when they're making those statements, that's, they're blaspheming God, and they're blaspheming the name of God and His work. So um, God, God is serious about His name. Um, yes. He's jealous for His glory, and He will bring chastisement if we are 
disobedient to him because, again, he wants his name honored in all places. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, all the nations of the world. So this is a very important thing that we that we should remember. You know, uh, Hebrews speaks about the thought, fact that our God is a consuming fire. Yes. And uh, we, we've got to remember the holiness of God and, uh, and pursue him with uh, a zeal for his own glory. Well, that's right. And, and, and to bring it back to the glory of God is so important because we're so naturally self-centered. If God is sending affliction, what about me, 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 me? And we, we need to remember that you're right. He is very jealous for the glory of his name, as he should be, because he's a holy God. What about the importance of humiliation, Al? This is something I want to make sure we get through before we run out of time, because you've mentioned active and passive humiliation, the responsibility that we have to repent and return to who we were as Christians. You you cite, for example, Revelation 3. What is the difference between active and passive humiliation, and how should we be engaging in that right now? Yeah, if you look again at that Second Chronicle 7 passage, verse 13 is talking about uh, these trials and calamities that God brings. And in bringing those, that is, a, that is what I call, what the Puritans call, a, a passive uh, humiliation. And what I mean by passive is it's coming to us. We didn't, we didn't actively bring it about. It's something that came upon us from God. And uh, and that passive will be that passive um, humiliation is meant by God to gain our attention, and we want to relieve ourselves from it. And so we'll basically say, "Okay, what do I need to do to fix this?" But it's more our, our motivation is more of self-preservation. Hmm. Now, the, the 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 wonderful thing is is that um, what God wants from us is not merely a receptivity to passive. Um, uh, passive humiliation, he wants us to move toward an active humiliation, which means that we decide to humble ourselves before God. And when we decide to humble ourselves before God, what's underneath that is actually a hope, because that's what he's saying in the passage. If we humble ourselves, then he will do these particular things. So we should have every reason to believe that if we will humble ourselves before God, and I'll talk about what that means in just a moment, then we should have the hope and confidence that he will, in fact, forgive our sin and heal our land. And that's, uh, that's very important. Right. It's a wonderful promise that he gives us. It is a wonderful promise. So when you're talking about the importance of humbling ourselves, what should that look like? Well, I think it's an awareness. We have to, we have to own up to our own sin. And it's very easy, I think, in today's Christian culture to uh, go light on our sin. Well, you know, we say, oh, we win some, we lose some, you know. No, we should, our sin should deeply grieve us, and not just in an intellectual fashion. It ought to grip our hearts. It ought to break our hearts when we see the depth of our sin and that we're sinning against such grace, the grace of God. So uh, humbling ourselves means... God, show me my sin, show me the depth of it, uh, help me to see the ugliness of my sin, and and when we do that, then it ought to bring us low, because again, we're sinning against this God of amazing love, amazing grace. So when we when we confess our sin in that way, then um, 
then we have every reason to believe, as we repent and the other things that are mentioned in the passage, we have every reason to believe that he will, in fact, forgive us and heal our land. And that's our great hope. That is our great hope. And he comforts us in the midst of our afflictions, even as they are upon us. And, you know, not only that, but you've mentioned that as a precursor to revival, God very often brings affliction on his people. And I'll have to bring you back out to get into that some more because you're such a great evangelist and you have such a heart for the lost and so much want to bring more people by the grace of God into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But all of these things are wonderful reminders for us as Christians to humble ourselves and pray that God may forgive us and heal our land. You can check out Forget None of His Benefits at fnohb.home.blog. The Reverend Al Baker. God bless you, Al. Thank you for being with us again. It's been wonderful, Janet. God bless you as well. Look forward to talking to you another time. Sounds great. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Boy, I really appreciate Reverend Al Baker, don't you? What a wonderful man of God. And he is just as nice and just as biblical in person as he is on the radio. I am privileged to know him. He worked on our God's Voice Conference last time around. And Lord willing, the next time we have our God's Voice Conference, Al will be a part of that as well. But I really appreciate a biblical perspective as much as anybody on everything that's going on right now. I don't know how you feel about what's been going on since the pandemic came into our lives, but I feel sometimes as if I'm about 10,000 feet over everything that's happening and just trying to figure it all out some days. I know it seems sometimes when you turn on the radio, the person on the radio ought to have it all figured out. And I know to some extent we have to understand all of these events, not only from a biblical perspective, but to be able to sort them out in real time and put them also into historical perspective. So we do our best here to do that, but there is a sense in which just as a Christian and just as a human being, I look at all of this and I say, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? What is going on? What is going on? And I think we're going to do that for a little while. And especially this week with the events in Washington, D.C., it's getting nuts out there. One of the things that is truly nuts and not at all unexpected is the reaction from the left. I mean, we, we understand what they're all about. We had Nancy Pelosi, the newly reelected House Speaker, saying during a press conference yesterday that if Vice President Pence doesn't move forward with efforts to remove President Trump from office, then the House might impeach him. Oh, that sounds like a tremendous idea. That's just a tremendous idea. The last couple of weeks before... Joe Biden is inaugurated as the next president of the United States. That's what you want to spend the next couple of weeks doing, impeaching a man who will be leaving office in two weeks anyway. That sounds like a colossal waste of time to me. It's all virtue signaling with these people. It's speaking to the base. Oh, this is so horrible. All of a sudden, they're all magically law and order, aren't they? 
Chuck Schumer, another one. This is the same guy who said he would fire the Senate sergeant at arms, Michael Stenger, when Democrats take the majority later this month, if he hasn't gotten out of the post by then, because they're all blaming him and the Capitol Police leadership for the breach in security of the Capitol that occurred earlier this week. Chuck Schumer called for President Trump to be immediately removed from office. And I'll tell you, these people are completely predictable. There's absolutely nothing stunning or surprising at all about the reactions of Pelosi and Schumer, nor is there any question whatsoever that somebody like Michelle Obama, who apparently didn't get the memo on what the first lady is supposed to be. I guess maybe Hillary Clinton ruined that for all time. But, you know, back in the day, the first lady's job was just to look pretty and be a a gracious hostess and very friendly ambassador to people from around the world who were coming to visit the White House and to just be there to support her husband and maybe have a couple of causes here and there that she cared about and just be an add-on to the president who was really, really good for him and good for the country and just kind of a support role. Not anymore. Hillary ruined that. And, And I don't have time to get into that. But Michelle Obama, this is just absolutely amazing to me. She not only says that the rioters who came out of that Trump rally this week were allowed to denigrate the flag and symbols of our nation. Okay, which first of all is laughable. Do you remember that video where Michelle Obama, it was back in 2011, I think, and there was a 9-11 commemoration and she and her husband were standing there and there was an honor guard, I believe it was, folding the flag and she leaned over to Barack and said, I think it was something along the lines of all this for a flag and people were doing lip reading and even Snope said, oh, we're not sure what she said because lip reading isn't always 100%, but I mean, Snopes, you got to keep it in mind. She was the one who was seen on video making, you know, a snide remark about the American flag. And now she's going after, uh, you know, Trump supporters, allegedly, these rioters. We're still trying to figure out which ones were Trump supporters and which ones were not. We're allowed to denigrate the flag. Okay, right. Okay. Right. Because the Obamas were such upholders of the American way of life and the symbols of our nation and loving the flag themselves. But Michelle Obama also says the social media companies should ban Trump permanently. Terrific. That's just wonderful. Ban Trump permanently. Well, Facebook already did. And I'm sure you heard about that. Facebook already did. Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, came out and said that uh, Trump is off Facebook Uh, This is what he said. He said, over the last several years, we have allowed President Trump to use our platform consistent with our own rules, at times removing content or labeling his posts when they violate our policies. We did this because we believe that the public has a right to the broadest possible access to political speech, even controversial speech. But the current context is now fundamentally different, involving use of our platform to incite violent insurrection against a democratically elected government. Um, do you believe that President Trump incited violent insurrection on the platform of Facebook against a de- Did he say, please, Trump supporters, crash into the Capitol and breach and, you know, go nuts and steal stuff? No, in fact, the president has come out now with an executive order 
going against the Capitol rioters who now could face up to 10 years in prison under this Trump monument executive order. This is reported by Fox. Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen vowed that pro-Trump rioters who entered the U.S. Capitol would face the full consequences of their actions under the law. And those consequences could include being charged under President Trump's executive order, authorizing up to 10 years in prison for injury of federal property. That seems a little inconsistent for somebody who wanted a violent insurrection. I think, and I'm of the opinion at the moment, and I'm always open to more information coming out and actual reporting being done, but I am of the opinion at the moment that he's a fighter. He wanted to be able to fight to the end and to be able to tell his constituents he fought to the end to try to rectify what he regarded as a stolen election. And a lot of us believe that it was a stolen election and there was fraud and there were violations of the law in some of these states where they didn't even follow their own laws or their own constitutions and how they handled the election. And, you know, he's had a lot of rallies over the last four years, wanted to have one big rally and get the troops all kind of excited. And it went spectacularly wrong with these people who breached the police and and one woman was killed. And, you know, here's the thing. Nobody's even really talking about this. No, that woman should not have been inside the Capitol. I agree with that completely. Did she deserve to be murdered? But let's talk more. You know, we don't want to talk about that. They're even putting on some of these websites for some of these media outlets. Four people died, and that's tragic and it's terrible. But what they don't want to tell you, many of them, is that three of the people who died died of medical emergencies. So I guess that's Trump's fault as well. He is now responsible for individual health problems of people who show up at rallies. I mean, at what point do you put the brakes on and say, all right, this is legitimate to talk about. We definitely don't want violence. We definitely don't condone anybody breaking into the Capitol. That was ridiculous. Why weren't the police more prepared? Why didn't you see more security? I don't have all the answers to that yet, nor do you, because we're still trying to uh, piece together everything that actually occurred. So I'm going to wait and not rush to judgment and put out virtue signaling statements that will make me look awesome, but perhaps I don't have the full story yet. I think that's really dangerous in the heat of the moment to act like you know everything and to start going for the jugular, and I just don't want to do that. I want to wait and see what happens. But here's another thing, and that has to do with the resignation of Trump officials. You might have heard that Elaine Chow, the transportation secretary, has now tendered her resignation. You have Mick Mulvaney, who is the special envoy to Northern Ireland, submitting his resignation. You have a whole lot of people who are trying to distance themselves from President Trump in these final weeks before he leaves office. Even former Attorney General Bill Barr gave a statement to the Associated Press. They report, he said, President Trump inciting a violent insurrection on Capitol Hill was a betrayal of his office and supporters. According to Barr, orchestrating a mob to pressure Congress is inexcusable. The president's supporters, as they say, attended this March for Trump rally that the president headlined and used it to spin nonsense conspiracy theories and urge his backers to march to the Capitol. Well, what they don't say is President Trump told his supporters to break into the Capitol. He didn't say that. And as Congress was counting the state's electoral votes to finalize Biden's victory, you had these people break in, a lot of whom we don't know. We don't know who their their names. We don't know. But some of them now are in legal trouble. We're going to get into that and more. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. When it comes to choice, the Ministry of Preborn offers the ultimate life-saving choice by providing a free ultrasound to an abortion-minded mother, all to introduce her to her preborn baby. And when she sees her baby on ultrasound and hears that baby's heartbeat, in eight out of 10 cases, that mom will choose life. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, and it's making a difference every day. The Ministry of Preborn reaches into the darkest corners and finds women in need to help them embrace motherhood. But the mission of Preborn is more than just a ministry to save babies. Its purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ by equipping pregnancy centers nationwide to help save both babies and souls. As Preborn puts thousands of ultrasounds into more pregnancy centers and counsels women, the ministry is also leading these moms to Christ. In 2020 alone, over 31,000 babies were saved and over 6,500 women came to the Lord. I'm going to keep my baby and I'm going to be a great mom. This Sanctity of Human Life Month, we honor the preborn by helping moms in crisis choose life for their preborn babies. Would you please join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help choose life for 350 babies this month? All gifts are tax deductible. One ultrasound session costs $28 and $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. Any gift of any amount will help. $100, $200, or even $1,000. You can call now, 855-402 baby 855-402 baby that's 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com thank you for your gift you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet well it is no surprise that the left would seize the moment and use everything that they have at their disposal to just drive Trump metaphorically into the ground, his political career into the ground, based on what happened this week. And we're still kind of gathering all of the information about who was arrested. Now, this is interesting because, as CNN reports, federal prosecutors have now filed 15 criminal cases stemming from the unrest at the U.S. Capitol. Most of the cases, according to the acting U.S. attorney, Michael Sherwin relate to unauthorized entry to the Capitol and the Capitol grounds. And some of the identities of these people are coming out, which I think is interesting. One of them is Andy Nyo, who has been that very, very uh, intense reporter about Antifa in Portland, has called one of these guys who was involved in the siege a BLM activist from Utah. This is a guy by the name of John Earl Sullivan. And he was previously arrested and accused of rioting. So he he was not your typical Trump supporter. So we're still waiting to see who the rest of these people are and figure out what's going on. Uh, Interestingly enough, the group behind this Washington Times story, which unfortunately I had shared this with you yesterday because the Washington Times generally tends to be quite... um, accurate in what they report, but apparently they got it wrong in a story where they said that this facial recognition software company talked about the fact that they recognized two rioters as members of the Philadelphia Antifa, and uh, that was not the case. And they, they said instead that there were a couple of guys that they determined had been 
with other groups and a couple of neo-Nazis and a QAnon supporter. So that wasn't right. And they retracted that. So just wanted to do that. See, this is what happens. People get excited. They use anonymous sources. They use one source stories and things go awry. And that's why you have to be very, very careful. Now, let's talk a little bit about the leftist insanity, if you want to say it that way. Joe Scarborough never fails to disappoint. Joe Scarborough over there on MSNBC really took it to the next level where he was calling for the arrests of the president and his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and his son, Donald Trump Jr. I really can't do it justice. You just have to listen. Cut one. I I think a lot of us have some questions, Uh, a lot of questions, not just for Donald Trump. I've got no questions for Donald Trump. He's an insurrectionist. There are no questions. He should be arrested today. He should be sent to jail today for insurrection against the United States of America. But I just do wonder this morning why they weren't better prepared for this. Why yesterday we saw some of these same Capitol Hill police officers. By the way, I never complained when they were tough. I want them to be tough. I want them. I want them to protect the people's house. Mm. Yesterday, we see them patting terrorists on the back. We see them taking selfies with people who are committing an insurrection against the United States of America, politely opening the door for terrorists who had scrawled on the door, murder the media, who had broken through this glass, letting them just walk through, letting these Trump supporters walk through freely and politely opening doors to the insurrectionists. And then letting the terrorists walk out of the same capital they had laid siege to and threatened the lives of members of the House and members of the Senate who they said they were coming to get, including Mike Pence. There has to be an investigation. Are there, how many of these Capitol Hill cops are members of Donald Trump's cult? Well, this is kind of interesting because one of the things that he fails to mention about the U.S. Capitol Police is they killed a woman. You know, uh, that wasn't mentioned in that little part of the rant there, nor did I hear anything in the Joe Scarborough clip indicating that he was focused on that. He was focused on all these police treated these insurrectionists so well. And I actually think that's a good point. why, Why did they? Why did they appear in some of these videos to move the fences to let these people through? Were, were they Trump supporters or did they know who these people were? I don't know. I, I'm for an investigation. I want to find out who these people are. I want to find out why security wasn't better. I think those are valid questions. But it's interesting how he leaves out the parts that make the story kind of go off the rails. And he wanted to make the point that the police were wonderful and polite, except for gunning down a woman who was unarmed, who shouldn't have been in the Capitol, but I don't believe deserved to be murdered over it. Now he goes on. Listen to cut two. He and his golf caddy, Dan Scavina, were putting out videos saying it was going to be wild. January 6th was going to be wild. We were warned that January 6th was going to be a dangerous day. The Capitol Hill police weren't ready. The D.C. police weren't ready. The National Guard wasn't ready. Nobody was ready. Or was it okay because they are white? I just have to ask. Oh, please. Please. Because I don't think this would have happened with Black Lives Matter protesters. Let me tell you something. We don't have to even go there 
If these insurrectionists were black, they would have been shot in the face. If these insurrectionists were Muslim, they would have been sniped from the top of buildings. So I want to know from the Capitol Hill police, what 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 is it? Is it just white people? Well, that's very revisionist history of you, Joe and Mika, because when we go back to last summer and we look at the video shots and the still shots of the insurrectionist acts that took place in places like Portland and Minneapolis and some of the other major cities, Washington, D.C. included, you can go online and you can look at that aerial shot of all the fires that were being set across Washington, D.C. And yet the mayor, Muriel Bowser, did not clamp down on that the way she clamped down on the Trump rally. That's a whole nother subject. But Give me a break. You people couldn't have cared less about insurrection back when your side was doing it. And as for people in Black Lives Matter being gunned down because they were black, if this had occurred in the same way, it, we remember what happened. That, that didn't happen. You had Black Lives Matter supporters treated like kings and queens. Many of them. I'm not saying there were no arrests and I don't think, you know, but, but for crying out loud, I mean, there were also killings in the streets there was a killing of a trump supporter in portland there was there were black business owners who were killed in the blm uprisings and i don't recall you guys getting all bent out of shape over that nobody wants to talk about what david dorn and some of the other black business owners he was a black policeman why don't you talk about that these people take what they want to talk about and bringing it into your your line of vision and making sure it's the most important thing and blown was sky high, but then they leave out all the parts that would make the story not make them look so good. It, it had nothing to do with them being, I'm just the, everything is race. Everything is race. Everything is race. And, and they don't want to dissect the story and talk about it as it really is. One more cut from Joe Scarborough. This is cut three. I also want to know, are we a nation of laws? Are we a nation of one man? Donald J. Trump called for the insurrection against the United States of America. He called for it. Rudy Giuliani called for combat justice just an hour or two before this happened. Donald Trump Jr. said, we are coming for you. That's insurrection against the United States of America. And if Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Donald Trump are not arrested today for insurrection and taken to jail and booked, and if the Capitol Hill police do not go through every video and look at the face of every person that invaded our Capitol, and if they are not arrested and brought to justice today, then we are no longer a nation of laws. Okay. Well, I guess maybe you should apply this to Antifa setting the federal courthouse on fire and uh, instigating 100 plus days of rioting. And that was not a problem. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We're all against violence. We're all against insurrection. Nobody wants that. But when there was talk during the summer, during the madness that occurred in our city streets of President Trump invoking the Insurrection Act, these same leftists were laughing their heads off and decrying it. And this is ridiculous. He's a dictator. You can't win. Heads, Trump loses and tails, they win. I mean, the other way around. You could say it the other way around too. Either way. Either way, 
you know, the bottom line is we have to be praying for this country. We have to be keeping our heads straight. We need to be thinking straight. We need to not run on raw emotion and virtue signaling, but we need to gather facts and make sure that those facts are guiding us and bathe it all in prayer. We have to. We need the Lord more than we ever have, and we can never lose sight of that. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. God bless. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.